Well, today we're in uh, part two of a message series called Real. Um, Chances are we've all been in a situation or a circumstance or a conversation where things got a little difficult, they got a little hard, they got a little tension-filled, they got a little frustrating, and uh, some people today in today's culture would say, that got real, all right? You've been in that conversation before? Man, that, what they're saying is that situation, that circumstance, that season at work, that thing I walked through with my family, it got hard. It got difficult. Life was not easy in that moment, so it got real. And where we started last week was saying that life gets real real fast. Real fast, sometimes when you ain't even ready for it. In fact, many times when you aren't ready for it, where the failed relationship happened or a financial hardship or a family fallout or losing someone you loved or a million other things, okay, a million other things that can go wrong and make life get real. For me, Friday a week ago, I was trying to take my wife to a date lunch out in the Flowood area, and instead we had an appointment with Bambi on Luckney Road. And Bambi won and my car lost, all right? And all I'm saying is life got real, real fast. And the thing that I didn't even ask for, now I got to figure out how to deal with, right? And you've got your thing maybe that you're walking through right now that you had last week that will be next week that's coming on Tuesday and you didn't even know it was going to happen, And so what a relevant conversation for everybody. It's not like this just for the church folk or this for the folks who are really struggling. No, this is for all of us that we would turn to God's word and go, what does it look like to have true faith? Not Sunday morning Christian culture faith, but like true faith on Wednesday when life gets hard and smacks you in the face. What does it look like to have true faith, rooted faith then? When life gets real. And so we're having that conversation out of James chapter 1. So let's go together. James chapter 1 towards the end of your copy of Scripture. would love for you to open it up, whether you've got um, a digital copy or a hard copy of Scripture. And we'll also put some verses uh, on the screen here in our room and in our gathering, wherever you're joining us from. Last week, we opened up the book of James to realize that James, the letter, was written by a guy named James, it's not hard questions, guys. It's not hard. That's softball right there, all right? Uh, Hey, a lot of James actually in Scripture, a lot of guys named James. This James who wrote the book of James was believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. And last week as we started with verses 1 through 8, here was the one main bottom line principle truth from last week, and it still matters actually seven days later. Trials are opportunities to mature your faith in a faithful God. Trials are opportunities to mature your faith in a faithful God. What James is saying is, hey, why don't you look at your trials differently? We all going to have them, so why don't you stop complaining and why don't you learn to look at them differently, that God's using it to actually mature something in you. Now, are you really grateful I preached it last week because then you had to live it this week, right? I always know, whatever I'm writing on, leading into Sunday, I'm going to get to live it at some point, okay? And so God gave me Bambi last week. It was awesome, all right? Today, here's what James is going to do. He's going to build off of that and just kind of add on some truth to it. So today, I'm not giving you one kind of principle truth statement. Today, I'm going to give you three of them as we look at verses 9 through 15. You ready? James chapter 1, verse 9. Let's pick it up there together. Here's what Scripture says. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. Verse 11. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their 
business. Now, at first glance, reading these verses, knowing that last week we talked about trials, you can be like, well, apparently James is detouring off of that to talk about money and the rich and the poor, because that's kind of what we just read. However, let's read it in context. James is still speaking to the context of going through trials, of walking through adversities in life. And here's the first truth that I want us to write down and then sit with for a moment is this. Trials are life's great equalizer. Trials are life's great equalizer. We just read it. Verse 9, James speaks about believers in humble circumstances. Or we could say those who may not have a lot. Maybe you feel like that's you or that's been you. And he also, in verse 10, mentions the rich. Here's what James seems to be indicating. That the trials of life erase any superficial distinctions that may be thought to separate the rich from the poor. Trials are life's great equalizer. So whether you have a lot or a little, guess what you're going to get to face? Trials of many kinds. All right, last week we, we said that really trials kind of come at us from three different sources, if you will. Some of them are self-inflicted, right? It's the choice that you made or I made back in college when we got married in high school, whatever that season is, and you did it to you and you're dealing with it. Some of them are others inflicted. Some trials are others inflicted. It's what your ex chose or it's what your boss did with the company or what your child chose that now you as a parent are having to navigate. It's others inflicted. And then some are just sin inflicted. Because we live in a sinful, broken world, trials come. Many that you don't ask for. We all will face them. The rich and the poor are subject to guess how many of those areas? All of them. Nobody gets out of it. Trials are life's great equalizer. And in our American culture, it's very easy for us to seek and to grow comfortable in what we have. Let me talk real for a second. What we can begin to believe, whether we say it out loud or not, is this. The more I make, the more comfort and control I can have over my life. You may not say that out loud, but oh, we think it, okay? If I could get a little bit more, if there's another zero on the check, then I got a little more comfort in my life, a little more margin, and I can control things a little more. Here's what James is gracefully reminding all of us. Those who have a little and those who have a lot, this life is temporary. And that comfort that you chase will fade away. In fact, that's what he says. He says, the rich or the poor, their life is temporary and it fades like the flowers of the field. In some parts of Israel, as James wrote, the grass was only green for just a few weeks. So James uses this analogy to say the rich man, though he may have much, and though there may be a lot of margin and a lot of comfort that he's after, his life will wither and fade just like the grass and the flowers of the field. Trials are life's great equalizer. Those who have a lot and those who have a little will all face trials of many kinds. So if that's true, then how do we live that out? What do we do with that truth? How do we apply it to our lives? What's the biblical applicable response? I'm going to give you two. First one is this. Learn to hold what you have and what you do loosely. Learn to have, hold what you have and hold what you do Loosely. We're in a world where, what is it? It's work hard, get better, get more culture, or get more. And in our culture, it's very easy to begin to believe that the security and the identity of what you do and what you make. And we root our security and our identity in what we do and what we make. Let me make this clear. Your work and the byproduct of your work is not the security of your identity. We'll say that a little louder for the people in the back. You ready? 
your work and the byproduct of your work is not the security of who you are and your identity. Work hard. Honor God with your work. But when your identity and your hope get tied up with your work, you begin to root the stability and the purpose of your life in something that is very temporary. And here's what the New Testament also tells us. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9. Look at it on the screen. It says, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money, not money, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And we could all fill in the blank with three or four names right now. Hear me. I believe it's biblically obedient to work hard at the job that God has given you, to bring glory to him, to give your best in what he's called you to do. But hear me say this, but you are not what you do. You are not what you do, and you are not what you make. As I heard a preacher say once, just like in Monopoly, it's all going to go back in the box. We do not choose when this life ends. This earth is not our home, and if you are in Christ the riches or the comfort or the margin or the control of your life, listen to me, is not in what's in your 401k. And I'm not saying you should manage it well. It's not in how many zeros are on your paycheck or how beefy you can get your savings account or how cushy the home is. Listen to me. Our greatest riches that we can't fully fathom in this moment are not of this earth. They're not. And they are waiting for us. Trials are life's great equalizer. So what do we do with that? Well, hold what you have and hold what you do loosely. Not like this, more like this. Here's a second response. Because trials are life's great equalizer, we're called to show compassion for all God's people. For all God's people. Since we all face trials of life, we should be quick to help others in their trial or their time of need. Hebrews 13 says it this way, And do not forget to do good, and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. spoke with uh, a lady this week who's a part of our faith family, and she's been walking through a, a season of trials, not like a day or a couple of weeks, like months of trials. And she said, Brad, I don't, I don't know what I would have done without the ladies in my life group who have loved me and prayed for me and texted me and come to see me, and helped provide for me. And I'm just saying, we all going to walk through it. It's not just you. And so as the people of God, we're called to walk with the compassion of God towards those around us. Trials are life's great equalizer, so what do we do with that? Well, show compassion for all God's people, and take what you have and what you do, and hold it loosely. Now, James begins to turn the corner a little bit in verse 12. Go back to James chapter 1, verse 12. It says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, first 11 verses from last week and first part of today, James talks about the value of trials. We've talked about how God uses trials to perfect or mature the Christ follower. He told us, hey, change your perspective on the trials. Now here's where he begins to turn things. Some in verse 12, he begins to explain the consequences of obedience and disobedience 
in the moment of the trial. He's like, you're all going to walk in it. How are you responding to it? Are you obedient or not? So here's the second truth I want us to, to sit with for a moment. Endurance in trials brings eternal blessing. Endurance in the trial brings eternal blessing. Let me explain what I mean, but let me first give us some context. Last week, if you were here with us on week one, we said that the original word that James uses for trials here in chapter one um, means this. It means approving or attesting, but it also includes this definition, the temptations of life to sin. So in verse 12, James is using the actual same Greek word for trials that he did in verse 2, but in verse 12, it's the negative sense of the word, leading us to believe that he's mainly real, really here focusing on temptation. In fact, your copy of Scripture may read, blessed is the one who perseveres under temptation. But don't forget last week I shared a little quote with you, and you liked it, and it was good. There's a degree of temptation in every trial. What you mean? There's a degree of temptation in every trial because trials can cause us to doubt or disconnect with God. So even in the hard thing, there's a temptation to desert the God who loves us. So therefore, all that to say, understand verse 12 as we break that down to understand, blessed is the one who perseveres under trials and temptations. I think you can take it either route. There's a sort of a fine line there. James sort of puts them in the same boat. Now, the middle part of the verse is where I want us to focus on for a moment, the middle part of the verse, James gives a promise. Did you read it? He says, blessed, right? Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Having stood that test, that person will receive the crown of life. Now let's understand what James is not saying. He's not saying that someone who endures or perseveres or walks through a really hard place in life gets the gift of salvation. That's not what he's saying. But what James is saying is that there's a benefit, there's a blessing in addition to the gift of salvation that is due the people that James is talking about. The New Testament, if you've broken it down, there are five different crowns, as Scripture speaks about them, that will be received at judgment for five different responses of obedience and faithfulness in this life. I'm going to give them to you with some references. It's going to be real quick. You can write it down. 2 Timothy 4 mentions the crown of righteousness. Maybe you've read that. For believers who live life pursuing holiness. Number two, 2 Corinthians 9 mentions an imperishable crown for those who live a disciplined life in Christ. Number three, 1 Thessalonians 2 mentions a crown of rejoicing for those who evangelize and disciple. In other words, sharing your faith and helping grow others up in their faith, there's eternal reward for that. 1 Peter chapter 5 mentions a crown of glory for pastors and ministers who faithfully shepherd and lead God's people. And then we fast forward to today's relevance. Revelation 2 and James 1.12 that we just read mentions a crown of life for those who endure trials and testing. Now, here's the deal. We don't understand everything about what I just read. All right? I can't fully explain it to you. So you can come catch me after the gathering, and I'll probably have to say, I don't know all of that. I can't wrap my mind around every bit of it. But what Scripture is pointing us to and what James is saying is that there is a reward beyond just the faith for salvation for those who would endure and persevere through the trials and temptations of life. James looking at his Jewish Christian friends as he writes, and he's looking at you and me, and he says, hey, listen, enduring through the trials of life is worth it. It's worth it for you to hang in there. 
It's more than just putting it on the resume of what you've survived in life, but there is an eternal reward for your faithfulness, for your obedience, and for your perseverance. We will all face trials of many kinds. It's coming. Don't act surprised, but we choose whether we walk out the other side of it beaten up or blessed. And James says, here's the road to what God would call eternal Blessing. Now, the end of verse 12 is just as important as that good news in the middle of it because the end of verse 12 gives the motive for resisting temptation or for standing through the trial when James says it's for those who love God. Watch this. You can try to fight temptation all you want in your own power, but you will eventually give up and weaken. You can try to man up, or woman up in the face of whatever the trial is that you're walking through, but guess what? You will eventually, on your own, you will succumb to the weight of life. Because I've watched it happen over and over and over. Here's what James is saying. The passions of sinful temptation and the weight of trials can only be really overcome by a greater passion for the honor and glory of God in our life. He says, That's the true motivation. That's where it comes from. The best motive for resisting temptation or standing strong in the trial is to do exactly what the Word said, to love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart and all your mind and all your strength. Here's what 2 Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His, God's divine power, has given us, put your name in there, has given everyone who's in Christ everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And verse 4, here's the benefit. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, in the Holy Spirit of God in you, spiritual gifts of God available to you, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Let me put some flesh on this. James is saying in the middle of your relationship fallout, don't wallow around in misery, but wash yourself with the word of God. In the middle of the health news that you didn't plan for and you don't know what to do with, don't pout, pray. In the middle of things going on with your marriage or your kids or your family or your parents that you can't figure out how to do and you think nobody else knows and you don't want anybody else to know about, listen to me, don't let it push you to isolation, but let it drive you to community. Man, I need other believers in my life to walk with me. You're not just standing in the face of the trial or the temptation for your good for this moment to say we made it next week. No, James is saying there's an eternal reward. It's better than anything you can wrap your mind around right now. It's any, better than any good news that's going to say, man, we're going to survive the finance thing going on. No, he's like, no, let me tell you. There's an eternal reward that's due those who lock in, who love me, and let that be the motivation for pushing through in this season, for walking through in the face of the temptation. Endurance in trials brings an eternal bless, blessing greater than anything we can understand in this life. There's three last verses that I want us to circle around, man, so much in here. We could have just preached on these three verses today, so this is for somebody. You ready? James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth 
to death. Now, James didn't want his readers to think that because God may allow us to experience trials, that he is also the source of temptation. He said, let me, let me clarify that. Don't, don't believe wrong because you know what happens, right? Many times when we walk through the difficult moments of life, who's the first one that we love to blame? I thought you loved me. I thought you were good. And James says, no, 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 no. Realize that God is not the source of temptation. In fact, he says, God's very nature is that he can't be tempted. Therefore, he also cannot tempt anyone. I read a quote this week from uh, the great pastor Charles Spurgeon. He spoke of the difference between trials and temptations, because sometimes that's a hard line to walk, isn't it? Especially as we read James. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He says, Satan tempts and God tries. But the same trial may be both a temptation and a trial. It may be a trial from God's side and a temptation from Satan's side. Biblical example, just as Job suffered from Satan and it was a temptation, he also suffered from God through Satan, and so it was a trial to him. James makes it clear that God is he's never the tempter. But he says, here's where temptation comes from. This is what we read, verse 14. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. Now, some translations use the word lust instead of desire. In this context, lust is not just speaking to sexual passions or, or uh, pleasures, but lust is simply referring to the desire to do or to have or to be something apart from the will of God. That's what he means by desire or lust. So that's, a, that's all skate. There's a whole bunch that goes up under that umbrella. And then James, because he knows we love word pictures and we learn better from analogies, right? James gives us the analogy. Did you catch it? He describes a union between the desire of a person and the temptation of the world. And what is the picture he uses? He uses the picture of conception and childbirth. I want to read to you again verses 14 and 15. I'm going to read it from the message translation because it may land in a whole different way. Look at what James says, James 1.14. It says, the temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust, our own desire. And lust gets pregnant and has a baby, sin, and sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. James says when the temptation of the world, what's out there, and the evil desire that's in my flesh because I was born into it, when they get in bed together, there's a baby that comes out, and that baby is sin. And when you let that sin hang out at your house long enough, when you feed it long enough, when you give it a place to sleep and a place to stay, and you let it kick its feet up on the couch, it will eventually bring death and destruction. And that's the final truth today, that desire in the wrong direction leads to death. That's what James is saying. Desire in the wrong direction always leads to death and destruction. And there's perhaps no greater example uh, of this than what happened at my house a few weeks ago. Uh, I think I've shared at some point that uh, last year, we got a little Yorkie puppy dog at my house. So she's a little over a year old now. Uh, her name's Crimson. We're thinking about changing it in this season because things are tough. Um, <laughs> but 
she has, she has brought joy and she's brought reminders of what it was like growing up with dogs. My wife and I both grew up in houses where there were dogs, but since we've been married for 14 years, no dogs in our house. My kids begged me and dad finally got soft. And so we went and got a Yorkie for Christmas a year and a half ago. And so she runs around, she's a mess. She causes all sorts of messes, but we've also begun to be reminded of like the things dogs can have and the things dogs can't have. And so like, I don't know how you do it, but I'm just telling you what we read and what we've learned. Like a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, we read that dogs are not supposed to have grapes, that there's some toxic things within the grapes that if it registers right, it can do an internal work on them, potentially even to lead to the point of death. That's what we read. So we're like, man, no grapes. Well, a few weeks ago, my wife shows up from the grocery store with a bag of grapes and she brings it to me. And so I'm doing my husband duty. I'm over at the sink, washing the grapes off, kind of pulling some of them off, throw them in a Tupperware bin so we can eat them throughout the week. And my dog realizes what I'm doing. She runs over to where I am and she loses her Mine. I'm talking about yapping, high pitch, all right, barking, jumping up and down like a pogo stick. Thank goodness she can't get quite to the sink. She's going nuts, and nothing would stop it. I mean, it's like, hey, why don't we go outside? I want to fetch, do I get a treat? And she's like, no, because she sees the grape, she sees what I'm doing, and she is losing her mind just to get one of those. If oh, if I could just get one of them. You following? And what she had no idea of. Is that her own desire could lead to her very own death right there. And church, listen to me. We were all born into this world with a sinful flesh and desire. And desire in the wrong direction will always lead to death and destruction. And James says, be aware. Be aware. He says, the wrong direction starts when what? What does it say? When temptation and desire drag you away. Drag you away where? It would drag you away to isolation. Why? Because it's in isolation. It's in the darkness. It's in the aloneness. It's in the seclusion from other people who know what's going on in my world, other people that I'm being real with. It's in that isolation that the enemy always does his best work. Take it to the bank. Why? Because in isolation, you got no help. Isolation, you got no manpower, no wise counsel. You got no one to help you up when you fall down. And hear me today, this might be a little too real, but some of you are living in isolation, wondering why you're losing the battle to temptation and sin. And James says, wake up. Stop doing it by yourself. See, it's a lot easier, a lot easier to say yes to the enticement of temptation when you don't have somebody to gracefully warn you? Or how about to lovingly pop you upside of the head and say, stop that? Because we need those people in our life. And God says, the temptation is real. Ladies, when the guy at work starts flirting with you, who's in your corner to keep you from being dragged away? Husbands, when that old flame wants to drop into your private messages on social, but your wife won't know because she don't check your phone, who loves you enough and who's up in your business enough to keep you from being dragged away? When the temptation's there at work to cut corners or to cheat, slide numbers in your direction, who loves you enough? Who's walking with you closely enough to keep you from getting dragged away? Hey, high school, junior high students, listen to me. When that friend or that kid from school invites you over to their house, but you know it's not just a hangout? Who loves you enough? Who's walking with you enough right now to keep you from being dragged away? 
James says we all need it. And here's the memo. When desire and enticement show up in the beginning, they never tell you that death is the long-term plan. When desire and enticement show up in the dark after your spouse went to sleep, when desire and enticement show up at the end of a long week when you're weary and probably not making your best decisions, they never show up at the desk. They never show up in the living room. They never show up on your phone and say, hey, if you go with me, the final destination will be death and destruction. They never sell the long-term benefit plan on the front. But man, it says when it is led in the wrong direction, it always leads to death. And you're like, death, that's a kind of a strong word. It's going to make me just die. Well, it may not be physical death, but you know what it may be? It may be the death of a relationship. It may be the death of your family. Because I've watched that happen. It may be the death of your job or your finances. Or it may be the death of your faith. Because Satan's greatest strategy, catch this, Satan's greatest strategy and temptation is to convince you and me that the pursuit of our desires, man, if you'll just chase that thing, be happy, live for you, you only got it once, go get it, big boy. If you and I, if we will pursue our desires, Satan wants us to believe that somehow it will produce life and goodness and joy and happiness for us. But can I remind you, don't forget this, Remember what Jesus said about the enemy? He says he came only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came, John 10, to promise life and to promise it abundantly. And then last week, what did we say? James 1 verse 5, we said in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the temptation, may we pray for wisdom. And we all said last week, we all need it. Nobody has attempt, has reached 10 out of 10 on wisdom. So may we pray. And when we pray, may we be those who pray in faith. God, give me the wisdom I need for this trial, for this temptation. I'm not doubting. I'm not double-minded in my prayer, but I'm praying for wisdom. So here's my, here's my ask for you today. It might get a little bit personal, but here's my ask. Is there an area of your life where you're checking wisdom at the door so that temptation might walk in? James says, be aware. Be aware. Desire in the wrong direction always leads to death. And I know, like, you might hear all this and go, man, sin sounds kind of serious. You're getting a little angry, right? No. I would say, yes, yeah, sin's serious. James actually calls it deadly. Because, listen, if you don't catch anything else today, at the foundation, at the foundation of every temptation is a lie. What's the lie? The lie is that God doesn't actually love you or want what's best for your life, so you need to go get it for yourself. I'll give you a moment just to think about your top two temptations. And at the root of every one of them, if you trace it down far enough, is to believe, man, God, like you sing about him on Sunday, but he ain't giving you what you really want on Thursday. Why don't you go get it? You can manipulate things better than him. Tell them you believe in them, but you work it out for your good. And at the foundation of every temptation is a lie. And Scripture says today, James says today, hear me, church, God hasn't left us. He hasn't left us for ourselves. His word where he makes promises, he's also the keeper of those promises. 
And he's not left you to yourself. In fact, he came to rescue you and me from ourselves. He's a good dad. But man, I realize today as I read that, that there might just be one person or 12 people or 40 people who today as you hear in James 1 and 13 and 14 and 15, maybe, maybe you're there. Like you're, you're in the grasp of temptation. You're in the grasp of a sin that you've been trying to shake and for 37 times you're like, God, I won't do it again, I won't do it again. And you did it again. And maybe it won't let go of you. So what do you do? Well, I don't want to just bark at you. I want to help you. And so let me give you three very quick, as applicable as I know how to make them, things to leave us with today. First is this. Write it down. Be real with God. Be real with God. What you saying? I'm just saying what the Word says. Confess your sin to God. Can I tell you something? Even though nobody else may know, you know what? He knows. No, he, he knows. You, you actually have never kept it a secret from him. He, he knows. Why I got to tell him? Because when you tell him, it's a confession that I ain't got this. I've tried to have this. I tried to do it. Tried to work it out. Tried to handle it on my own, but I ain't got it. And so I'm coming to the God of all wisdom, of all power, of all grace, and I'm going to be real with you, and I'm confessing it. Second is this. Get real with others. Get real with others. What do you mean by that? Well, I'm just going by what James says a while ago, that you weren't meant to fight temptation alone. So you need to surround yourself with some other people who love Jesus and love you and love you towards Jesus. Some people that can hold you accountable. Maybe that's two people in an e-group. Maybe that's hanging out with some life group folks. Maybe that's a trusted friend that you work with that loves Jesus and knows you and that you could get with. Listen to me. And get the church face off. What you mean? Well, man, we love to say it's fine, I'm fine, everything's fine, right? When it ain't. And God says, no, put people in your life, and you may have to select wisely, but put people in your life who know you inside and out because they're loving your heart towards Jesus and get real with them. And finally, pursue real truth consistently. Pursue real truth consistently. We just said it. That in the face of the temptation, what are we believing? We're believing a lie. God don't love me. He don't have what's best for me. I got to go make it happen. So how do you counter a lie? With truth. Who's got the truth? The God of all wisdom. And he says, come see me. Consistently seek me for that truth. And can I just be honest, all right? In our church culture, if you're waiting on what the 30 minutes of all that the preacher has to say on Sunday, and that's all you're living off of, you're losing you're losing. God says, man, seek me. Know me. That you would personally learn to love my word. That you'd gather with other people who are figuring this thing out and you would discuss it together. That you would consistently be a part of the larger gathering of believers, all of us seeking together the same hope because in his truth is the counter to the lie that you keep believing that causes you to keep losing. Desire in the wrong direction leads to death. But the good news today is he hasn't abandoned. He's not left us. And he's given us, as scripture says, a way out. Thanks for joining us online today. We gather not just to sing songs and hear the teaching of scripture, but we also gather so that we might be changed to live more like Jesus. 
Through our time today, we pray that you were challenged and encouraged to think about your own life and how you may or may not be living out Jesus' command to follow Him. We want you to know that we are available and ready to pray for and encourage you as you seek to know God and what it means to live in relationship with Him. To get a conversation started with one of our ministry team members, you can simply text your first name to 601-397-6111. Our ministry team would love to pray for you and help you in any way. You can also find reading plans and other resources to help you take next steps in your faith on our website, theexchange.cc. As we close out our time today and prepare to scatter as the church, let's speak out our declaration together. We believe the great exchange took place when Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so we can know God. We exist to see people exchange their old life for new life in Christ and live out their purpose. Christ's love compels us to exchange ideas for truth. God's word is our standard. Selfishness for serving, we will serve others. Pleasing for reaching, we will share our faith. Keeping for dispersing, we will make disciples. Forgetting for celebrating, we will praise God. We are the church.